Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Welcome back, Cardio Nerds. Daniel Ambinder here, and excited to bring you another Cardio Nerds Case Report episode. Just a reminder that Cardio Nerds Cardiology Case Report series shines light on the hidden curriculum of medical storytelling we learn together while discussing fascinating cases in this fun, engaging, and educational format. In today's episode, Amit and Karan will meet up with Dr. Matthew Delfiner and Dr. Katie Venturi from Temple University Hospital and discuss a very challenging case about a patient who presents with shortness of breath in the setting of having an LVAD. Stay with us. But before we dive into this case discussion, we are so proud to introduce Dr. Anthony Peters as CardioNerd's FIT trialist. As you may know, the CardioNerd's Clinical Trials Network was created with a mission to pair equitable trial enrollment with FIT personal and professional development. We have so far recruited 18 sites worth of incredible FIT trialists and matching PI mentors to support enrollment for Paraglide HF with mentorship from lead PI Dr. Robert Mentz. Cardiac's FIT trialists are nominated by SIPIs for their interest in academic medicine, clinical research, and of course their nerdiness. Dr. Anthony Peters was nominated by Dr. Adam DeVore and Dr. Robert Menz to represent Duke University. Anthony, welcome to the CardioNerds family. Would you please introduce yourself to the audience and tell us what you're excited about as part of this program? Sure. Thank you so much, uh, Matt. Thank you for having me in the FIT trialist program. For everyone, my name is Anthony Peters. I'm a fellow at Duke University now. My medical school training started at uh, UNC Chapel Hill here in North Carolina, and then I was in residency at University of Virginia. Had the opportunity to do the clinical investigator track there and do some master's coursework in epidemiology and clinical trials. That really got me interested in the field. And then, as I mentioned, came back to North Carolina to Duke for fellowship. Um, and in my third year here now, and shifted from clinical years to research years at the Duke Clinical Research Institute. And, and for this program, I'm really excited for the collaboration aspect of it, to learn from, uh, from other sites, from other um, experts around the country, um, and from other FIT trialists. We just had a, a call uh, where a couple of the FIT trialists were sharing some of their insights in, in recruiting patients, and immediately I was thinking about ways to apply that here at my institution. So really excited for that collaboration and, and learning aspect in clinical trials. Well, Anthony, we are so excited to have you as part of the CardioNerds Clinical Trials Network and team. And just hearing your intro just tells us how much of a wealth of experience that you bring to the clinical trials program. Anthony, mentorship is absolutely central to this program, and you are at the epicenter for the trial right there with the lead PI. Can you tell us about working with Dr. DeVore as the site PI and Dr. Mentz as the lead PI, and what does that mean for you? Absolutely. I, I feel fortunate to be able to work with the folks here at, at Duke and the DCR. I, particularly Dr. DeVore and, and Dr. Mentz. I think both of them have really taken me under their, their wing and taught me a lot about hands-on clinical trial experience. I mentioned, I think I learned a little bit about it from the uh, you know, academic or book standpoint, but this has been just incredible to be given the opportunity to get hands-on uh, to care patients and, and being involved in clinical trials in that aspect. And both Dr. Mentz and Dr. DeVore have been really instrumental in, in teaching me uh, and including me in of those processes. Well, that's terrific. And thank you so much for your work as a fit trialist. And we're just really excited about the value that you bring to the whole group. Absolutely. Thank you guys so much. Remember, CardiNerds is an independently fellow-founded educational platform with a mission to democratize cardiovascular education. 
This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. And do be a nerd. Spread the word by rating and reviewing us on your favorite podcast app. And more importantly, by telling your friends, family, and colleagues about the show. And now, time to get nerdy. Hello, cardio nerds. Welcome back. We're going to take you back to Philadelphia for the second time joining our colleagues at Temple University Cardiology Fellowship Training Program. Last time we were there was episode 53, where we spoke about CTEF and pulmonary hypertension with Anika and Anne Sophie and had just such a blast. So really excited to have on with us Dr. Matthew Delfiner, the ambassador from the program, and Dr. Katie Vancheri. Katie, Matthew, welcome to the show. Would you mind introducing yourselves to the audience? So I'm Matt Delfiner, first-year cardiology fellow at, at Temple. I did my medical school at the NYIT, College of Osteopathic Medicine, and finished medicine residency also at Temple. And I'm uh, very excited to talk about this interesting case. Hey, I'm Katie. I'm a second-year internal medicine resident at Temple currently, and I went to medical school at Louisiana State University in Shreveport, Louisiana, which is where I'm from. Really excited to be on today. Thank you for having us. Matt and Katie, it is such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. Before we get started, we need to have a place to discuss cardiology. So Matt and Katie, where are we going to go for today? Let's head over to the large, nice green Fairmount Park, hang out on this nice sunny day, look over the Schmuckle River towards Center City. That sounds like a beautiful spring day in Philadelphia. I'm down. Last time we were hanging out with Temple Fellows, we were blown away. So really excited to learn from y'all. Tell us about your case. All right. We have an awesome case today. We are going to be talking about a 53-year-old male who has a medical history of COPD and heart failure, status post LVAD. And he is presenting with progressive shortness of breath over the past three months. And the shortness of breath has been associated with a dry cough and some mild chest tightness in the center of his chest. So he is coming in today to see us with these symptoms that have been really like getting worse and worse over the past few months. And he doesn't really note any other associated symptoms, nothing, no fevers, no chills, no, you know, night sweats, anything like that, not having any nausea or vomiting, no recent sick contact. And he's also just noticed that he's feeling a little bit more fatigued, hasn't been able to, you know, exert himself quite as much as he was back three months ago. So he's really just concerned because these things have not gone away. Thanks, Katie. Yeah, this is pretty complicated when we have a gentleman who's short of breath with an LVAD. We need to think about what is causing shortness of breath in general and anybody with an LVAD. Of course, we need to uh, think about anything that causes shortness of breath in anybody. And then we have to make our way towards the heart and the VAD itself. So is there an issue with the native heart? Is there an issue with the interaction between the pump and the heart? Is there an issue with the pump itself? These are all things we need to think about. And we can ask some really good, interesting questions in the history and some physical exam findings and diagnostic tests can help reveal the answer. Thanks, Matt, for going through that differential. I think it might help to get a little more information. So some additional background for this patient. His heart failure etiology is non-ischemic cardiomyopathy. Uh, and he actually had his LVAD placed around three months ago. So it's been since he had the LVAD placed that the shortness of breath has been progressing. As far as his COPD history, he is on two liters of oxygen at home at his baseline. And he does also have a diagnosis of paroxysmal atrial fibrillation. As far as, you know, other things going on with him, is his medications include amiodarone, gerosamide, losartan, metoprolol, and warfarin. 
doesn't have any allergies. As I mentioned, no you know, major exposures recently or sick contacts. As far as his social history, he has a past history of substance use, but currently not a smoker, no drug use, no alcohol use. So I guess now that we know a little more about him, where do we go from here with this differential, Matt? Yeah, so it's very interesting that his shortage of breath has been present and getting worse since the LVAD was implanted. It makes me think, is the pump not working as something dysfunctioning with the pump itself or the interaction between the patient and the pump? Or is it completely unrelated? His COPD history on whole oxygen really complicates the matter. So the best thing to do now would be to do a good physical exam. I think that would really help us figure out, is this the lungs? Is it the heart? Is it a combination? Is it the pump? You know, Matt, I agree with you and Katie, everything you guys have described so far about describing the differential here. And maybe, you know, just in my own mind, I'm trying to think through dyspnea in an LVAD patient, because this is not a common presentation for a lot of our listeners. I, I agree. It's important to, again, think about all the other ideologies that we think of in a patient without an LVAD. And when I think of dyspnea, I try to make a distinction that is different than hypoxemia. Because dyspnea is that sensation of shortness of breath. And I try to break it into different categories, one of them being reduced oxygen delivery, another increased oxygen consumption, and the last, inadequate carbon dioxide exchange. So when there's reduced oxygen delivery, could that be a hypoxic respiratory failure? Could that be acute anemia? Of course, then patients with LVAD, and we'll hear about that. Surely they have different anticoagulation goals for this patient have had a drop in the hemoglobin and of course reduced cardiac output. Now we'll talk about that here shortly and you guys will go through our physical exam, but of course the LVAD is going to be part of what's controlling our cardiac output. And Matt was also referring to the other part, the interaction between the LVAD and the patient. When I think of increased oxygen consumption, we're thinking about things like vasodilation to sepsis or does the patient have adrenal insufficiency because they have developed liver dysfunction. Again, these are amongst a broad differential, may not be in play here. And then, of course, in terms of carbon dioxide, could there be some type of extrinsic cost? Could a patient have had now had some reason to have uh, reduced carbon dioxide clearance? We don't know the patient's weight, the size yet. Could there have been injury to the phrenic nerve during surgery? Now, again, this is unlikely, but we always have to think about potential etiologies for why this patient could be dysmic. And so I think the broad differential will be helpful. But other questions that also come into mind to me are what was this patient's LVAD course? Did they have other predisposing factors that would make them prone to specifically LVAD dysfunction, including right heart failure or uh, a prolonged course post-surgery with right heart failure? Because that's certainly going to play into it. Thanks, Karen. One thing that I you know, wanted to mention then talking to this patient, just re reflecting more on his LVAD course, he did mention that just recently in, in the past few weeks, he actually had a ramp study and had some adjustments made on his bad setting. Matt, is there anything like important that we should be thinking about when the patient's had a recent ramp study? Sure. Thanks, Katie. So in a ramp study, we can increase or decrease the speed of the LVAD, increasing how fast the rotor is spinning, and therefore trying to change the flow of the LVAD and measure echocardiographic parameters or invasive hemodynamics. So if this patient had hit a ramp study just a few weeks prior to this presentation and the symptoms got worse after that, I think that's really informative. So what happened with him is his speed was increased from 
5,400 RPMs to 5,800 RPMs. Now, when we do a ramp study, we look again at invasive hemodynamics and echocardiography with a goal to decongest the heart by changing the speed. Also a goal to have intermittent aortic valve opening so the aortic valve is not opening with every beat. We have a goal of having our interventricular septum at the midline so it's not bowing from right to left or left to right. And we want to make sure our right ventricle is functioning very well because an LVAD and assisting the left ventricle is not going to be very helpful if you have a right heart that doesn't work. So this patient had his ramp study just a few weeks ago and his speed was ultimately increased and his echocardiographic and hemodynamic parameters were improved in the ramp study. So the speed was kept increased. And it wasn't until he got home that he started to become worse and short of breath. So we need to think about what happened in that ramp study. Did we possibly increase the speed too much? Did we unload the left ventricle too much, causing a suction event? So his LV would be completely collapsed. Did we not increase the speed fast enough and now we are inadequately unloading the left ventricle and we essentially just have a gentleman in heart failure because he is not getting assisted by his assist device or does he have right heart failure these are all possibilities that could happen with a ramp study it would be odd that none of this was noticed in the immediate post ramp study period while he was still being monitored so these are all things that are possible in a ramp study that could cause worsening shortness of breath over the past few weeks. Thanks for going through that, Matt. Okay, so to be honest, I'm not really quite sure what to make of the recent ramp study and the changes that you mentioned, but I think taking it back to the physical exam will probably help us to understand a little better what's going on. So his vital signs show that his temperature is 97.1 degrees Fahrenheit. His heart rate is 91 beats per minute with a blood pressure of 98 over 76, a respiratory rate of 18, and a peripheral oxygen saturation of 88%. As far as his general appearance, he's alert, arousable, he's interactive, he appears mildly short of breath, but not too uncomfortable. And then the rest of his exam, he has moist mucous membranes, his lungs are clear to auscultation, his heart you know, has a regular rate and rhythm, and you can hear that LVAD hum throughout the cardiac cycle. And then as far as his abdominal exam, his belly is soft, non-tender. His extremities are normal. He actually has no peripheral edema. And then neurologically, he's alert, awake, oriented, and interactive and appropriate. So already I'm thinking this physical exam doesn't really lead me to think about volume overload. His lungs are clear. His, he has no peripheral edema. His JVP is not elevated. So, I mean, where do I go from here, Matt, as far as figuring out what to do for this patient? Sure. So that's a very informative physical exam. Very detailed. Thank you. So I do want to go back to what Karen said earlier in that hypoxia and dyspnea are not the same thing. And we knew that our patient was dyspneic, but now we know that he's also hypoxic. So that's a very important information. Going further to the physical exam, you mentioned that he has no elevation of his jugular venous pressure. He has no peripheral edema, he has no crackles in his lungs to suggest that he is in acute heart failure. Also, if he is moving air well, no wheezing, there's not much evidence that he's having any issues with his COPD either. So one thing that we may be able to rule out under differential is an acute heart failure exacerbation. One thing I'm interested in is what's going on in his actual LBAD. 
And we do know that in the part of the physical exam, we did interrogate his LBAT, and we saw that there were no alarms, no low flow events, no high flow events. So we know that the, the pump is working just fine as well. So Katie and Matt, that was a very informative exam. And just taking a few steps back, so we make sure that all of our listeners are on the same page here. In terms of the LVAD itself, we're talking about a continuous flow LVAD here. And specifically, you guys mentioned this was a HeartMate 3 patient. So that essentially means that there is a pathway for blood to leave the left ventricle throughout the cardiac cycle with a continuous flow LVAD. And when that occurs, we could typically have some variation in the flow between systole and diastole, as long as the left ventricle has some contractility to it and the systemic aortic pressure is not too high. So why does that matter? So for an LVAD patient, the flow is really, and especially for patients with continuous flow LVAD, is really going to be dependent on the preload, and they're going to be very sensitive to afterload, and some level of intrinsic cardiac function is going to factor in. Because the flow that occurs is inversely related to the difference between the aortic pressure and the LV pressure. That pressure is minimized during systole and maximized during diastole. So when it's maximized, that's when that flow is going to be low. When it's the lowest difference between the LV systolic pressure and the aortic pressure is when the flow is going to be highest. And the reason that Katie and Matt were able to report there was a systolic and diastolic pressure is because there is some pulsatility for this patient. And what that means is that we do have some level of contractility. And that indicates that maybe, and it's not a, a hard and fast point, but it indicates that the patient likely has a speed that's been well adjusted for the patient's intrinsic LV function. And that's further supported by the fact that the patient is not in decomposite heart failure from our examination. Now, we're going to get more information here, but this is really critical for us to understand, is it the LVAD that's dysfunctioning here, or is the LVAD and patient interaction dysfunctioning here, or is there something else going on? And I'm leaning towards something else going on when I'm trying to understand just from the clues you've given us on the physical exam so far. So, Katie, you want to give us some more details about what happened next and what information you obtained? Yeah, I would definitely love to give you some more data. So starting out with his lab, his basic metabolic panel shows that his electrolytes are in normal range and his creatinine is at his baseline, which is around 1.5 to 1.6. His complete blood count shows a white count of 12.8, hemoglobin and hematocrit of 14.5 and 45.2. And this hemoglobin is also near his prior baseline, which is around 12 to 14. His platelet count is 271. His INR is 1.6. We also have a troponin of 0.465, a BNP of 46, and a lactate of 2.2. So that troponin and lactate are mildly elevated. That BNP is low. And other labs are generally not too different from his baseline. We also have an x-ray. So just taking a look at his chest x-ray, we see that he has an LVAD and also a biventricular pacemaker in place. He has no pulmonary edema, no effusions, no consolidations, no pneumothorax, nothing acutely different on his chest x-ray compared to prior. And then we also have an EKG, which shows a paced rhythm at a rate of around 100 to 110 beats per minute. So we have the data now. We have the physical exam. You know, I think that the data we have so far is not necessarily 
taking us in one direction or another with regards to what's going on. So Matt, what would you suggest that we would get next on this patient to figure things out? Thanks, Katie. So those labs might not really point us in one single direction, but I think it can satisfy some things. Number one, we, you told us her hemoglobin was 14.8. That's not too shabby. It can help us understand that he's not bleeding and he's not having hemolysis likely. Those are two problems that are pretty common in LVAD patients. Firstly, with LVAD patients, they are prone to forming AV malformations in their GI tract, and they are prone to bleeding, especially because they are anticoagulated, just like our gentleman who's on warfarin. LVAD patients are also at risk for hemolysis from the pump itself. There could be pump thrombosis that increases hemolysis. And the HeartMate 3 is magnetically levitated, and it is less prone to forming clots and hemolysis, but it's still certainly possible. So the fact that his hemoglobin is 14.8 makes those two diagnoses on the differential less likely. His chest x-ray is clear, you mentioned. There were no consolidations, no effusions, no pneumothoraces, which also helps rule those diagnoses out of our differential and also agrees with our physical exam that he's not an infant heart failure decimation. So now that we have a good idea of what this is not, we're still struggling to figure out what is causing all this. But while we're thinking about this, we need to help this patient. We need to make him not hypoxic anymore. We need to stabilize him. Hey, Matt, that was absolutely wonderful. You know, we're going through the data, trying to figure out what's going on with our patient. And, you know, this goes back to our problem representation, right? And thinking through that differential diagnosis, which is who's our patient? What are the risk factors, right? What is the clinical syndrome and what is the duration of symptoms? And here, the clinical syndrome is that of both dyspnea and hypoxemia. We talked about some of the really important causes of dyspnea in LVAD patients, but we really have to hone in on what is the cause of both dyspnea and hypoxemia. And then we tie in with that temporal link with one, you know, it started with the LVAD going in and got worse when we augmented the LVAD flows. So Katie, where do we go from here? We're looking for cause to explain the clinical syndrome of dyspnea with hypoxia and a cause that would be worsened by an LVAD. So at this point, I think that looking at this patient and the way that he's presented, we are going to need a little more data to figure out what the cause is of his dyspnea and hypoxia. Um, like Matt said, we can't wait too much longer without doing something to help reverse these presenting issues. But thinking more about this patient's problem representation you know, just to kind of recap, we have a 53-year-old male with COPD with advanced heart failure, status post-recent LVAD placement, coming in with progressive shortness of breath that has worsened since a seed adjustment on his LVAD in the past few weeks. And then so far, our exam and our data shows that he's, he's euvolemic currently. He's not anemic. He doesn't have any acute intrathoracic abnormality on his chest x-ray in a normal paced rhythm. So, Again, we, we got to kind of go back to the physiology here of the LVAD and understanding what may be going on. And we've already kind of gone through an, an excellent breakdown of the possible options that could be, could be leading to his dyspnea and hypoxia. But at this stage of his clinical course, he is still dyspneic and hypoxic. And so this patient is started on BiPAP initially, but unfortunately, he's persistently hypoxic despite BiPAP ended up that he was in severe respiratory distress and he had to be intubated and placed on mechanical ventilation. But at that point, he's still hypoxic. He even advances to become hypotensive, is requiring his oppressors, 
And at this stage, the decision was made to cannulate this patient for venovenous ECMO to help improve his oxygenation. And of note, during cannulation to VV ECMO, this patient's blood pressure started to rise and he actually became hypertensive. So he didn't require the vasopressors during that time as he was hypertensive. But we noticed that this patient's oxygenation improved actually up to 100% during this time while he was hypertensive. So Matt, I've got to send it back to you at this point. I don't really understand what to make of this. Um, why did we decide to place VV ECMO for this patient? And, and what do you make of his high blood pressure improving his oxygenation? Thanks, Katie. This really changed directions a bit. We went downhill pretty fast. So there are a few interesting things you mentioned. Number one, he is really hypoxic right now. He is having a hard time getting oxygen into his blood with perfectly clear lungs on both physical exam and on a clear chest x-ray. So why is he having such a hard time oxygenating despite apparently normal lungs? And then why does this oxygen improve with hypertension? There's a lot of strange things going on here. Before I get there, I want to comment on the VV ECMO. So for VV ECMO, we have extracorporeal membranase oxygenation. We are oxygenating the blood outside of the body. We have a cannula that's inserted into a central vein that removes blood to an oxygenator outside of the body. It removes the carbon dioxide, just as lungs would, and then sends it back to the right side of the heart. In the right side of the heart, the blood will be 100% oxygen saturated make its way through the lungs to the left side of the heart and then through the LVAD to the rest of the body. That's why the VV ECMO is going to be beneficial here. But why did we need it to begin with? Why was he so hypoxic? Why was it refractory to mechanical ventilation? And why did it improve with hypertension? All of these are pointing me towards thinking of an intracardiac right to left shift. If he has blood that's moving from the right side of his heart, that's deoxygenated towards the left side of his heart, and then go from the left side of his heart to his systemic circulation, that could explain why these hypoxic refractory to mechanical ventilation with clear lungs. So how does the hypertension fit in here? Well, as he's hypertensive, the dynamics of his LVAD and the LVAD heart interaction change. This is what Curran was speaking about earlier, that as he became hypertensive, there is going to be less flow through the LVAD will increase the pressures on the left side of his heart because we are not unloading the left heart as well. So as we are increasing the pressures on the left side of the heart, we are changing any potential gradient between the right and the left side and stopping any shunting that's coming from the right to the left, stopping the oxygenated blood going from the right side of the heart to the left side of the heart and bypassing the lungs. That's what we need to think about right now. A good way to help figure this out of confirming this hunch would be an echocardiogram. So we do have a transthoracic echocardiogram that showed no abnormality and no shunting, but we performed then a transesophageal echocardiogram, which actually showed, like Matt said, right to left shunt across a patent foramen ovale. This was something that had not been seen on prior echocardiograms in the pre-op workup for this patient before his LVAD placement or in the perioperative transesophageal echocardiogram. So it's really interesting that this would be revealed now, despite the prior in-depth workup in the perioperative period. What do you guys think is the cause of that? Like, why would we not have seen this TFO before when this patient has had such an extensive workup? 
I think in order to answer that question, Katie, we are going to need to bring our patient down to the cath lab and put some catheters in his heart and measure some pressures. Because like you said, he had an extensive workup and he had a transesophageal echo in the OR while he was having his LVAD implanted. That should have revealed a, a patent brain in valley, but it didn't. So I think invasive hemodynamics are going to be very helpful here. So we did take the patient to the cath lab so we could do a right heart catheterization and so we could close this PFO if we need it. So in the cath lab, we had a catheter in his right atrium to measure the right atrial pressure and the right atrial oxygen. And then through the PFO, we actually had a catheter going directly into the left atrium to measure simultaneously the left atrial pressure and the left atrial oxygen. And then we were able to change the speed on the LVAD to determine if his shunt would increase or decrease depending on what speed the LVAD was. So before we brought him down to the cath lab, we need to make sure he was stable. We saw a shunt on the echo that Gideon mentioned. So we had to bring his speed down for 5,800 to 5,000 RPMs just to eliminate any possible shunting that was caused by this high speed of the LVAD. So we did that. He was on VV ECMO and we brought him down to the cath lab. Our first set of measurements in the cath lab showed a mean arterial pressure just on a non-invasive cuff of 109 millimeters of mercury. We had a right atrial pressure of 10 millimeters of mercury, left atrial pressure of 14 millimeters of mercury. So the left atrium had higher pressure than the right atrium. We had a partial pressure of oxygen in the right atrium of 189 millimeters of mercury. It's so high because of the DD ECMO. And in the left atrium, we have a partial pressure of oxygen of 391. So it's much higher in the left atrium than it is in the right atrium. Because not only are we getting all the blood from the DV ECMO in the left atrium, we're also getting all of the uh, oxygen from the lungs. And remember, his lungs are working just fine. We have a TVE at this time under these settings, and we see that there is no shunt going across the PFO. There's no blood moving directly from the right atrium to the left or the left to the right. And this fits, this makes sense, because we see that his left atrial pressure is greater than his right atrial pressure. So we would not expect any flow going from the right side to the left side. The next thing we did is we increased the speed of his LVAD. We went from 5,000 RPMs to 5,800 RPMs. This is the same speed that this patient had when he presented to the hospital. So we would expect some shunting to occur now because he was hypoxic when he came in. So we would expect the same thing to happen now. So his speed was 5,800 RPMs. His mean arterial pressure was 112 millimeters of mercury. His right atrial pressure was nine. His left atrial pressure was eight. And there was no shunting across. There was no blood flow by TE across the patent brain valley. Well, this was a bit surprising because under these same conditions, he was very hypoxic earlier. Well, let's see if we can reveal this shunt across the PFO by increasing the speed again. We turn next, turn the speed up to 6,200 RPMs. We started at 5,000, went to 5,800, and now we're at 6,200 RPMs. The mean arterial pressure is 117 millimeters of mercury. The right atrial pressure now is 11 millimeters of mercury, and his left atrial pressure is 8 millimeters of mercury. And we start to see a small, trivial shunt from the right to the left on TED. 
we do see that pressure gradient. The right atrial pressure is 11. The left atrial pressure is 8. So there's a small shunt going along that gradient, but certainly not enough to cause the profound hypoxia that our patient had. So what's going on? Why do we have high pump speeds, but no shunting across the PFO? This is what would have happened in the operating room with the TV, that he had a high speed, but no PFO was revealed because there's no flow across it. But now we need to go back to the patient-bad interaction. This isn't all about the VAD. And while his speed is very high at 60 to 100 RPMs, that's spinning very fast and should be pulling a lot of blood through the LVAT into the aorta. It's not because his mean arterial pressure is 117 millimeters of mercury. LVAT patients typically do not have mean arterial pressures of 117 millimeters of mercury. In fact, for all the reasons we discussed a few minutes ago, we have a gold mean arterial pressure for patients in the outpatient setting with an LVAD of 60 to 80 millimeters of mercury. We're way higher than that right now. So of course, we're not unloading the left ventricle very well, and therefore we're not decongesting the left atrium very well, despite having high RPMs because our afterload is so high. If you really want to see a shunt across the PFO, if we want to see why this gentleman is so hypoxic, we need to mimic the circumstances in which he was hypoxic. So we need to lower his mean arterial pressure. So we kept his LVAD speed at 6200 RPMs and we gave him nitroprusside to cause arterial vasodilation. This lowered his mean arterial pressure to 65 milliliters of mercury. Now we're in a pretty similar hemodynamic setting that this patient would have had at home. He has a low mean arterial pressure. He has high speed on his LVAD. And we note a right atrial pressure of 7 millimeters of mercury, a left atrial pressure of 1 millimeter of mercury. That's a huge gradient right now. So, of course, on our transesophageal echo, we see a lot of blood flow directly through that PFL. We have blood going directly from the right atrium into the left atrium, bypassing the lungs with our low systemic vascular resistance. In addition to seeing all this flow across the PFO on the echo, we also can measure the right atrial partial pressure of oxygen, and it's 180 millimeters of mercury, and yet it's so high in the right side of the heart because of the VVFMO. It's 180 millimeters of mercury. And now in the left atrium, we can measure it directly. We have a partial pressure of oxygen of 119 millimeters of mercury. We have essentially equal partial pressure of oxygen in the right and left side of the heart. Imagine our patient was not on BV ECMO. Imagine he had oxygen saturation of 70%, 70% in his right heart. And if we were at equilibrium with his left heart, that means his systemic circulation would be seeing a max oxygen saturation of 70%. Of course, he would be dyspneic with that oxygen saturation. So now we've proven that this PF level is what's causing him to be so dyspneic. We only have one step left, and that's to close this PFL. Wow, Matt, this is awesome. It's so cool that we were able to do this testing to figure out exactly the hemodynamic conditions under which the shunting was significant. So basically, by adjusting the LVAD speed and using nitroprusside to adjust the patient's mean arterial pressure while holding constant the VV ECMO flows and the VAD flows, we were able to see that at a higher mean arterial pressure, there was no 
right to left shunting, and there was even some trivial left to right shunting. Whereas at a lower mean arterial pressure in the 60 to 80 range that we would typically keep our VAD patients in, there was significant right to left shunting that is likely accounting for this hypoxemia that we're seeing in this patient. It's so cool to see all of the numbers and to understand the physiology behind what's going on with him. So Matt, like you said, now it seems like we've got to close this PFO. So what happened next in the cath lab? Thanks for that great summary, Katie. And that's exactly what we did. This PFO was closed percutaneously. And now we need to confirm if his shunt is taken care of with the closed PFO. So we need to create the perfect hemodynamic storm, one in which somebody with an open and primo valley would become hypoxic. So we increased his LVAD speed even to 6,200. We gave him more nitroprusside. His mean arterial pressure was 62. And what do we see? We see on our, our transesophageal echo, we see no shunt across the inner atrial septum. His PFO closure device is working perfectly. We had turned off the DV ECMO momentarily so we can just have a normal oxygen saturation in his right heart. And then we check his peripheral systemic saturation. And we see he has 100% oxygen saturation on his pulse ox. Despite having such high LVAD speed and an appropriately low mean arterial pressure, he no longer has systemic hypoxemia. We have fixed this gentleman's shunt, and hopefully we have fixed his dyspnea. Matt, Katie, this is such a phenomenal case, and thank you for providing these extraordinary images and videos to help us understand what's going on here. So for our audience, go ahead and take a look on the blog page for all these images to wrap your mind around this. And I think one of the things that is so fascinating about this in a lot of cardiology is that this isn't a static process, right? It's dynamic. As the hemodynamics and physiology is changing, so is the consequences of shunting, right? The structural abnormality here is the PFO, and the hemodynamic consequences are both because of the PFO and with a lower SVR and a faster pump speed, essentially sucking blood in from the LA and therefore sucking blood in from the RA, right? And so as these dynamic things change, the systemic vascular resistance, the pump speed, the relative balance of PVR and SVR, you see more and more of this PFO right-left shunting come about and more and more hypoxemia. So the images and videos are worth a thousand words and just take a look on the website to see what we mean. So I'm looking at the images now. You've got the occluder device in, there's minimal shunting happening. Katie, this patient comes back to you. How did he do? So this patient, after his PFO closure, comes back to me in the CCU, and he's doing pretty well. His oxygenation is stable. And actually, within 24 hours, we were able to decannulate VV ECMO. And then 24 hours after that, we were able to extubate him because his saturations were doing great on minimal vent settings. Within the next couple of days, this patient was awake. He was working with physical therapy. He was able to be transferred out of the CCU to the advanced heart failure service on room air. And then before discharging him home, a repeat ramp study showed no flow across the atrial septum. It's so amazing how well this patient did, and it was really exciting to see him recover after this PFO closure. He was feeling so much better. His dyspnea was gone. He was happy. He was interactive, and he was thanking everyone on the team for taking care of him. It was such a pleasure to do that and see him improve so much. Katie and Matt, this is a fantastic case. Thank you so much for sharing it. You know, I want to ask both of you, your major takeaways. For me, my personal takeaway here is that we should always have a systematic approach to dyspnea. 
regardless if the patient has an LVAD or not. And then there's some specific nuances that we have to remember with patients with dyspnea that we, you guys play so well here. And specifically, how the LVAD interacts with the patient, including what the preload is, what the patient's map is, and what the RPM is. What are your major takeaways? Yeah, Karen, those are great takeaways, and I definitely agree with you. I think a big thing that this case highlights for me is the importance of thinking about other causes of their presenting symptom besides just the LVAD, and in particular, not anchoring on an LVAD, you know, pump problem as something that we need the main thing going on. You know, we know that PFOs are present in up to 25% of all comers, and that includes those with LVADs, like Matt said at the beginning, you know, patients with LVADs are not necessarily special or different from other patients. They can have a similar problem going on. So this case really highlights for me the importance of not anchoring on a diagnosis and, and kind of going back to our problem representation and looking at all the possibilities of what could be going on. And then using our imaging, our echocardiogram, our physical exam, all of this data together as pieces of a puzzle to help figure it out and find the diagnosis. I want to highlight how Every silver lining does have a touch of gray that this gentleman was actually having a very well-functioning LVAD and he was decongesting his left heart so well. But the touch of gray is that he became hypoxic from that. So we need to think about the, the pros and cons of everything we do. Every step we take does have possible complications. We just need to always remember that for all our patients. Every silver lining has a touch of gray. So profound. And I'm guessing the gray here was the acrocyanosis in this patient's fingertips and lips. Guys, this was phenomenal. I learned so much. So happy to have Temple back with us. You know, sitting here on the green on a beautiful Philadelphia spring day, we have so much to celebrate. We're celebrating Matt becoming a father seven weeks ago, Katie being elected to become chief resident in recognition of just, you know, what we saw today, how you're such an incredible educator. So let's toast to each of you. Congratulations for everything you're doing. And welcome to the Cardinerts family. Cheers to that. Thanks, Amit. Thank you so much. And for our eCPR segment, we have faculty expert, Dr. Val Rakita. Dr. Rakita completed his medical school, internal medicine, and general cardiology fellowship at Temple University Hospital, moved on for his advanced heart failure and transplant cardiology training at Mount Sinai Hospital before returning as a faculty member at Temple University Hospital. So he'll tell us uh, all about the nuances of patients with LVADs and dyspnea. Thank you, uh, Matt and Katie, for presenting this case. In order to really understand this patient's presentation, we first have to understand what an LVAD actually is. So an LVAD is an implantable, durable left ventricular assist device that's meant to provide cardiac output to the body in a someone with end-stage heart failure, particularly end-stage left heart failure. In these patients with end-stage heart failures, some will go on to get a heart transplant, while others will go on to get a LVAD. And LVAC in these situations can either be as a bridge to the heart transplant or there can be, quote, destination therapy, which is either a temporary or permanent ineligibility for the heart transplant. Some reasons why patients may be ineligible for heart transplant and thus go on to get an LVAD would be medical comorbidities, such as other organ dysfunction, morbid obesity with a BMI of more than 35, severe pulmonary hypertension, advanced age, 
which is relative in programs across the country, but generally above 70 or 74 years old, some malignancy that will limit their lifespan independent of getting a heart transplant, or for those waiting for a heart transplant but are hemodynamically unstable and have a long projected waiting time and so need a durable intervention to be healthy enough to survive until transplant. The patient in this case was implanted with a HeartMate 3LVAD as destination therapy. As part of routine post-VAD implant care, we performed an optimization study. What is an optimization study? Basically, we utilize technology, whether it's echocardiography or right heart catheterization, while we adjust the speed of the LVAD to optimize how much the left ventricle is being decongested and how much flow is being provided from the heart to the body. The goal of these optimization studies is to provide the most possible flow from the LVAD, i.e. the highest possible speed, while at the same time making sure that the speed is not too high as to completely decongest the ventricle and cause the filling pressures or the cavity size in the left ventricle to be too low or too small, because that would also cause problems such as suction events, ventricular arrhythmias, low flow, and possibly syncope. So during these studies, we are balancing the effects of high flow, low flow, higher speed, and lower speed to accomplish the overall goal, which is to make the patient feel better and to provide organ perfusion without causing consequences. And what determines flow that the LVAD can produce? Well, it's a combination of both the speed at which we sent the pump during these optimization studies, as well as the blood pressure in the body, i.e. the aortic pressure. The higher the pressure, the harder the pump has to work against the pressure and therefore less flow is produced and the higher the filling pressures remain in the ventricle. The lower the systemic blood pressure, the easier it is for blood flow to leave the VAD and therefore the lower filling pressures you'll have on the left side of the heart. These LVAD patients can also present with dyspnea and special care must be taken to consider the possible etiologies. They can present with an infectious etiology such as pneumonia they can also present in pulmonary edema. In an LVAD patient, pulmonary edema is especially suspicious for LVAD malfunction because ideally LVADs are consistently decongesting the left ventricle and thus preventing the pulmonary capillary wedge pressure from being abnormally elevated. And so if an LVAD patient is presenting with pulmonary edema, that may suggest that there's a problem with the LVAD itself. They also may suffer from native lung disease independent of their LVAD, such as COPD or emphysema. Due to the anticoagulation required for the LVAD, they have frequent episodes of GI bleeding, and thus they can present with symptomatic anemia, with their symptom being dyspnea and shortness of breath. They may have had pre-existing pulmonary hypertension that may have worsened over time, and thus presenting with dyspnea due to pulmonary hypertension. Although unlikely because they are persistently anticoagulated, Pulmonary embolism is always on the differential in a patient with acute dyspnea. And finally, a more rare cause of dyspnea in LVAD patients is the presence of an intracardiac shunt, such as the one we found in this case, a new right-to-left shunt in an LVAD patient. Thank you to CardioNerds for allowing us to present this very interesting case, and thank you all for listening. Beep. Beep.